What's up, everybody? This is Scott Lease. I'm here with my friend Richard Harris, and this is the Surf and Sales Podcast. We're here today talking to Colin Cadmus, VP of Sales at Aircall. And uh, I've been personally really excited to, for this episode. Number one, because Colin and I have talked like a million times over text and LinkedIn and, and what have you, but never actually like seen each other live face to face before. So it's great to, to meet you here uh, over Zoom. And number two, one of the reasons I'm excited for this is because Colin is one of the few VPs of sales, heads of sales, what have you out there that speaks his mind about some things that uh, are deemed quite controversial at times, which I love. Uh, if you know me, you know that that's right up my alley. So welcome to the show, Colin. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we are- we'll try not to talk about too much that might get you in trouble with, uh, you know, anybody where you're at right now. But no that's problem. Okay. We could dance on the on the line a little bit. That's all good. <laughs> which which actually leads to a really good question. How do you how do you do that? I mean, is Aircall's you know vision that they trust that in Colin? Is it hey you you sort of said look I am who I am I wear it on my sleeve I'm not going to embarrass you but I'm not going to hide behind stuff like you guys are you guys are not a small company, um, and you certainly have it feels like a lot more ability to it feels like they trust you a lot, which is good, but how, do, how does that come about in an organization? How do you keep that kind of culture? Yeah, so when I started posting, I, I kept it very PG, right? It was just all sales tips. Uh, and, and then I started to get a louder voice on some bigger topics. And, uh, you know, initially, like there've been, I guess, a series of conversations with my CEO over the course of me building the following and making more noise, so to speak. Um, first of all, so it's a French founded company. Uh, all of our founders are French. They are super cool, super relaxed, just chill guys who are, uh, what's interesting about, I don't know if it's the French culture or if it's just them, but, uh, like our CEO, for example, is incredibly intelligent, but also incredibly goofy and just lighthearted and doesn't take things too seriously. Right? Like if, if you lose 20 customers tomorrow, like, Oh, what were we going to do? Right. Like it's kind of like, uh, and then he'll calculate a million ways that we're going to fix things, but he, he doesn't panic in the way that I'm used to with like, uh, the U S I guess, leadership teams that I've worked with in the past, which has been comforting. And so in terms of me posting stuff, there's definitely been a couple of times where I've posted things, uh, that I probably shouldn't have. And he's talked to me a couple of times about it. Like he, he, a doesn't tell me what I can or can't post. Right. Uh, but what I lost sight of one particular time is that we have another office in Paris with a hundred some odd people that I don't have extremely close relationships with because I don't see them every day. So they maybe don't understand my personality the same. They maybe don't understand the context. And this one particular post happened to be um, sort of showing off our top earners of a certain quarter. And I put very specific numbers in there to show off uh, a, to congratulate them, but also to show off that, uh, you know, this is a good place to come work and you can make a lot of money. Um, What I didn't think of there is the perspective that everyone in the company would have seeing that, particularly if you're working out of another country doing the same job. And those numbers, those U.S. income numbers look substantially larger than what you're getting paid to do the same thing in another company. And, you know, to me, I just assume, oh, well, they must understand that. But when you see the number and you maybe didn't know that, uh, that can can be annoying to people and that ruffled some feathers. And so uh, I dealt with that 
but I've always in, in the maybe two or three instances that's happened, I've always gone back to the fact that uh, we preach that transparency is one of our four values. And uh, I feel I'm yeah. just supporting that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we kind of laugh I, I, about it and whatever. And he's just like, look, just think about, you know, you're not just talking to your LinkedIn audience, right? You're also talking to everyone in the company and just be aware of that. Um, and there've been times where I've written posts now before I post it. I'm like, all right, now what would that team, you know, how would they read that? Uh, and it, and it, it, it's important, I think, to think of it that way, but I also, uh, err on the side of taking a little risk as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely a, a different beast when you've got, um, people to report to and people working under you and that kind of thing. Yeah. I can tell you, you know, we've talked about this plenty of times before, but like, it's very freeing once you don't have that kind of, uh, yeah. They, they see the they see the benefits too though and i think that that's why he doesn't hold it back i mean he's come back from visiting uh investors in paris and whatnot and he's like he's like you're a celebrity they're like wait you have you guys have that vp of sales so and so and these yeah. are investors yeah. in the middle of europe you know he's like right. so he knows like i'm helping to get the name out there and there's benefit for the business too i'm a celebrity <laughs> do you that's see what he said this, uh, i don't see do it that way but do you see this stuff as like a core function of the, the head of sales role now? I, I actually do. Um, I actually think that it's increasingly important for VPs and heads of sales to um, you build a brand, um, have, you know, consistent kind of thought leadership, what have you, participate in panels and, and discussions, be visible uh, for a lot of different reasons. Perhaps chief among them is just for recruiting purposes, right? I mean, I didn't spend one red cent in three years when I was at Qualia recruiting, not one. Um, I didn't have to, you know, I could make one post and I'd have dozens of, of resumes on my way. And if, it, if you trickle it on down, right, and it's, you know, Colin's the VP of sales and Scott's the director of sales and Richard's the sales manager and, and all three of you have, you know, strong followings and followings and posts, you know, consistent, valuable content who doesn't want to go work for that particular team? Because yeah. from the outside, you're like, good Lord, why, I, I could learn from these people all day, every day. This is amazing. So I'm curious if you see it um, the same way I do. I, I think it is, is going to be almost mandatory that, um, you know, sales leaders have that kind of presence that, uh, that you've built for yourself. Definitely. Um, yeah. In many ways. Right. So the recruiting thing is huge. Uh, when we recruited, well, when I recruited, uh, the hard, one of the hardest roles, I had two really difficult roles to fill. One was bringing in a director of sales development, which is not an easy role to find someone who's really good at that, um, especially in New York. And during the time I was recruiting, it was just, it was a, it was a buyer's market, right? Not a seller's market. And so uh, that was a hard role to fill. <clears throat> and I found the guy through LinkedIn and, and I cold messaged him and we started talking that way. And, uh, it, it's spear, it spawned from that, but then we hired, um, his whole team and we hired a lot of people. I want to say it was like 20 or 30 people in a very short amount of time. And that was when I really saw the impact of it. And I wasn't even trying to use LinkedIn in that way. Like I wasn't writing posts thinking this is going to attract people. But I remember our recruiter just coming up to me saying another candidate said they saw your post on LinkedIn and they want to work here. Another candidate. And now it's just like, you hear that, I hear that every day, all the time, right? And it's even happens outside of sales 
uh, yeah, that's right. It happens outside of your department as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You should get yeah. like that jersey bonus, right? Like when Tom Brady goes to Tampa Bay, I'm sure it's in his contract that for a certain percentage of jerseys that are sold, he gets some of that money. You, you Scott need and I were, you, you, we were you just bring talking up an about interesting that. point that Paul <laughs> and I were actually talking about this kind of thing. Like, there's some ancillary value that we that we bring to the table as yeah. a sales leader, right? You can bring an audience. So let, let's say yeah. that, um, you know, Richard, you run a particular company and Colin and I both work for you, right? Uh, Colin and I's combined linked audi- LinkedIn audience is, I don't know, 100,000, let's, let's say, right? So you might make a post about this particular event and it goes almost nowhere. Then you ask us to, you know, participate, share it or be on the panel. And all of a sudden you get, you know, a couple thousand registrations. Well, where it should we get a jersey fee? Should we get a cut of that somehow? It doesn't it doesn't happen. You don't get the, the registration numbers, you don't get the sponsorship revenue without the people who are pushing it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So where where's where's the line there? So I'm curious what you what you think about this, Richard. You've been you've been out of the operator role longer, you know, than than, than I have. So I'm curious for your so outsider's it, perspective now. It's it's a little bit of a challenge because my my perspective on that is different, right? Like um I'm very grateful when anybody ever asked me to speak at an event um, and, or do a podcast or do a webinar and things like that. Cause I, I know I'm driving registrations. Uh, I do find it interesting that um, there are times where I'm asked to speak at an event. There's not only are they charging people to come to the event, they might even be charging them to come to whatever training I'm going to do. And but you got to hold on. You got to pretend you're working for a company now. That's, that's, that's what I'm asking not you right now in your current role you as Colin right now or me as seven months ago at Qualia and and Aircall or Qualia or XYZ company basically using Richard and your brand brand well so I think it's in two different ways right like to a certain extent um where's my equity on that right so there's a big piece of of that I help affect equity that way I think there's a big piece of Look, if I'm doing it from sales, well, that's just me doing my job to protect myself, to make my equity, to hit my number, to get the right salespeople. Like that is part of my job. That is in my title is to hire and recruit and train a team to be successful, right? Um, If they're now starting to leverage me um, for marketing or engineering as the brand, or they start to make me the face of the brand, there could be something said, but I think it has to come to an equity side. I don't think you can ask for a, you know, okay, uh, then, then, there, then therefore, in that argument, folks like Colin should be lobbying for a, a bigger salary, bigger OTE, and a, and a bigger chunk of equity than a different VP who doesn't have that kind of pull. I've never I've lobbied for any of those things. Of those things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, why, like, like it's, it's, it's hard for the CEO or even the VC to say no to that with a straight face. They can, the only no they have is, well, it's never been done before. And, you know, the obvious answer is every time I hear that from a startup CEO or startup VC, it's like, well, then why are we in the VC world? Everything we do is about never having been done before. I'm just applying it and you're just not used to hearing it. I think the way they see it, though, when you make an ask, um, A, it depends on the current environment of the company, how things are going, you know. uh, But I think to them, when you ask for something, if the company's doing really well and there's good trajectory for you there, I think they look at it more like 
Is he going to leave if I say no? Yes. They do need to think that. Now, that doesn't mean you need to be a jerk about it or threaten it yeah. or even say it. But it's kind of like, guess what? When the economy turns down, are you going to hang on to me? Because the answer is yeah. no. Yeah. Like, like you can spin that really quickly. And you have to although, do it. Although way. that's where some of this value comes in, right? And, and I would say that, um, you know, if, if my job were on the line, right? Maybe I'm not getting paid to help drive registrants to these events and to get big name speakers, you know, out to our events, but, but that's a value I'm giving to the business, right? And so maybe my sales team struggled for a quarter, but now it's not just a question of losing our VP of sales because he missed a target. It's a question of losing all of these other added values that, yep. that you're bringing. And so for me, that's why I feel like what I like to get paid for those things. Sure. Is there maybe a world someday where it evolves to that? Probably, right. maybe not in my lifetime, but I think so eventually, we, yes. Put it this way, Colin, if you haven't LLC'd yourself as Colin Cadmus LLC, you're doing yourself a disservice because you are a business entity with influence and scope and ability to affect. Right now, you know, Aircall is absolutely paying you for that. But in theory, they don't own you. Yeah. Right. Any more than you own them. Look, you're look, if you leave air calls, not going to die. Right. Of course. But if you leave, Colin's not going to die either. Right. I've seen enough sure. companies yeah. that have hired VPs of sales like you or Scott, and they think they figured it out. Uh, I don't think this is what's happening at air calls. Sounds like you have a, a different relationship than other places I've thought of. And all of a sudden that head of sales leaves and they think they got it dialed in and, you know, valuations decrease and drop. Um, yeah. I, I feel like you're, um, you know, take this the right way because I don't know your loyalties. You're a little bit like a Belichick. Like you've built a system, you've built something in place that my guess is, you know, if you get promoted to a higher level or someone comes and recruits you and makes you that CRO and air call can't match that, the system that you've built will stay and be a strong infrastructure. And you, I know you as a human, you would never burn that bridge with mm -hmm. air call or anybody. You would want to make sure it's left in good hands, but you know, that is a intangible piece that is now becoming more and more tangible in these days, right? The beauty of all this data for sales is that it's now tangible as to what you bring, right? Yeah. You, we know yeah. your completion rate. We know your accuracy rate. We know how well you do on a three-step drop, a five-step drop, a seven-step drop. Right. We know how you're going to measure against this defense or that defense. So, you know, there's now a Colin Cadmus LLC, man. What's your jersey number going to be? 17. There you go. Why 17? That was my hockey number. I was born January 7. So 1 7. I wore it for my whole childhood. Yeah. That's cool. Didn't know that. I actually had a gold necklace that had a 17 on it once. And of course you did. Uh, at the lowest point of my life, when I was living paycheck to paycheck off credit cards, I actually had to pawn it off to, uh, to pay off a bill. Wow. That, that, uh, so that, motive, I think motivation of that number, to never go back to that day ever again. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. Second, what's that? Tell, what was that? How, how long ago was that? That was in, I graduated 2008. That was probably in 2009. My first, or second year out of college. And so what, just out of curiosity, how did that affect you 
because that, that's a meaningful piece, right? There's something sentimental about that for a long time. Like, how did that affect you or inspire you to start working? Did it, did it affect you or did you already have that work ethic? And it was just like, oh, shoot, I'm six months out of college and the loans are finally coming due and I just got to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, it was 2008, right? That it was, it was like what we're going through today, but I was just coming out of school. I had nothing, right? Um, and so I, I took a job at CVS Pharmacy as an assistant store manager. I started as an intern. Uh, it was the only job I could get. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, life is expensive. And at that point, I move out of the fraternity house and I've got my own apartment. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm making 40 grand a year. I got a salary. So, you know, I got a nice apartment. Not nice, but I had my own place to live. Uh, I had a car and I had my own expenses and credit card bills started to pile up. And so, yeah, it got to a point where I knew I started to see the interest accumulating on the credit card bills and I just wanted to pay it down. So I took anything that I owned really. And I took one trip to the pawn shop uh, and just got enough to, to, to chip away at that debt. But <clears throat> I don't know that it, it wasn't as it almost sounds more traumatic than what it actually was for me. But looking back at it, it's like, I can't believe I had to actually do that because damn, I wish I had that necklace today because I had it for so long and it was custom made in Aruba on a vacation. I remember it like, uh, and I just so loosely let it go. But I, I think that's kind of how I make decisions is I'm looking around my apartment. I have some shit that's worth some money. I got credit that I owe and I need to pay my, my debt. And so, you know, how long did it take you to you? you know, moved away from <clears throat> CBS and retail and, and broke yeah. into inside sales. It's four years. Um, I spent, so I moved to Rhode Island in 2004 for college, graduated in 2008. Um, as a senior at my school, you had to do an internship to graduate from the business program that I was in. And so you meet with your career counselor and they give you all of these companies that the school has a relationship with, that they can help tee up the internship. <clears throat> and CVS, their headquarters is in Rhode Island. So they have a very good relationship there. So I did the internship. Um, there were like 16 interns and it was this whole program where if you did really well, they were going to hire a couple people or give you a job offer. Uh, and so I, I crushed that. Uh, got the job offer. And at that point, like, A, I knew the job market was bad. B, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life anyway. Um, and C, I didn't want to leave my college buddies, right? A lot of them were still in school. And I liked the idea of staying in that town. And here was a chance for me to get an apartment and stay there and not have to leave. I lived there for four years. I built a life there. I didn't want to go. <clears throat> so I took that job. And I actually liked it for a while. I mean, I was learning so much. They, they put you through this incredible training program. You're basically in, a, in, a, in training to be a store manager. And the way they run those businesses is like store manager owns that place, right? Like you are running that building as if you owned it. Of course, you have the resources of corporate, but you're managing every detail of the business from inventory to hiring to firing to preventing, you know, theft, every detail. Uh, and there's intense training that they put you through that goes on for years. And so I did the assistant manager role for two years where you're really being mentored by the store manager. Some guy who's been doing this for 16 years, you know, lives, eats, breathes, and sleeps this stuff. Um, 
And then I got the whole goal there is to get promoted and get your own store. And they even put your name on the front of the building. It says store manager right under the hours, Colin Cadmus. And like that for me, I got my first store in the slummy West side of Providence, Rhode Island, where no one even spoke English. It was all low income. People were our most common, uh, our, the largest percentage of our revenue was run through EBT cards. Um, we had a massive amount of theft there. And all the advertisements on the radio in the store were in Spanish. I didn't even speak Spanish, but uh, imagine me running that store. Um, wow. But I did. And it was, it was an opportunity to take a store that was really being run into the ground. The last manager did a shit job with it. Uh, and I cleaned it up and did a lot of work. And I think it was like six months later, I got promoted to go over to the east side of Providence uh, on Thayer Street, Brown University area, rich college kids in a store that did over 100k a week in in retail business. And that was uh, a lot of fun. So anyway, I'm, I'm rambling on here, but I did it for four years, but it eventually got to the point where uh, all of my college buddies had graduated and left. So I was now my social life was totally you're the last guy. You're the last one there. Yeah. No yeah. <laughs> What's that? No more fraternity parties for Colin. No, no, it died down. And, and honestly, I was working too many hours anyway. So between putting in 80 hours a week at the store, because you own that place and, and all they do is chip away at your budget of payroll hours. And, but the same amount of work has to be done. Every day you come in, there's a computer system that tells you all of these tasks that have to be completed. And so it was really tough because they just kept cutting budgets back and the only person on salary in the store that wasn't hourly, because your budget is based on how many payroll hours you have. Um, you're right. So the only person who can pick up the slack is you, because you're the only one on salary. And so I'm quickly working 80 hours a week, taking in delivery trucks at 4 a.m., coming back to open the store, like just crazy shit. And it, it started to just get miserable. And so I, wanna, I, I was on a... So you inherited this, this really rough store, right? Um, you have a language barrier. Right. You, you know, talk to me a little bit about the motivation it took to work with your team to get them to want to turn it around, um, to work with, with, with a very different look, you know, all three of us are, you know, yeah. y'all suffer from this affliction of, of being white men where things just aren't as hard for us. And, and we have to admit it. Yeah. How did you earn their trust? Well, because those things, I think, translate, I don't care where you are, what organization, whether you're in sales or not, like, but I, I've definitely inherited bad sales teams. But what are some yeah. of the things you wanted to work on to try and chip away at that? Yeah, so I mean, I was not prepared, right? I, I, it was my first time getting thrown into that environment. And I think that's where I realized maybe a little bit of it, a little bit of it comes naturally to me because I just built good relationships with people. Uh, I made a couple tough decisions in the beginning to let some cancerous people go. Uh, and then I was lucky that there were already three or four people there that really wanted to do well. And what I've found, at least in my days at CVS, uh, is oftentimes when something, when a business is being run into the ground, whether it's a sales team or a CVS store, um, it's usually not the team, right? It's usually the leader. And they're refreshed to have someone come in who wants to do it right and who wants to uh, hold them accountable, train them, and just treat them well, right? These are hourly workers who, 
you know, will we'll, we'll get abused in a sense, right? Like someone calls out sick and they just call you on your day off and force you to come in. And like, it was a matter of like, in those instances, I got off my ass on my day off and came in and filled that shift. And it's little decisions like that, that I think help the team start to respect you because you're not walking all over them, taking advantage of them, and then they'll work harder for you. And that translates right into uh, to sales. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing right now. Um, I mean, you're in New York City, the, the hotbed for everything going on, at least here yeah. in, in America. But you're selling a solution that is arguably the right place, right time, given everything going on. And yeah. in theory, as an outsider looking in, I'm thinking to myself, like, geez, you, you might, these guys' sales might be going up through the roof right now. You might have, you know, people on the phone more more than ever. So. What is it like selling distributed team in, in New York City right now in kind of a one of the industries that is arguably booming right now? What, 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 is that, what does that feel like? Because I think that's very unique experience compared to what so many other people are going through right now. Yeah, great question. So a lot of people are comparing us to, to Zoom, not, not to say that we're on anywhere near the level of Zoom, but similar sort of reaction, right? People go remote, there's an increased demand for the product. And there is a large part of that that's true. There's also a big difference. Um, I would presume that Zoom is not having a significant impact with their existing customer base. Uh, I could be wrong. Maybe they are. But um, for us, it's it's really a weird dynamic right now because the sales side is booming. So if you're in charge of new business, you have nothing but upside right now. But if you're in charge of managing our existing accounts, and I was just talking to Richard about this before we before we started, um, we have a huge chunk of our com- our customer base that are in the travel industry, that are in yeah. hospitality. Uh, now you and- got fight you got to fight the renewal wars and things like that it's not even that man a lot of these a lot of these companies are on month to month terms and so we come in in the morning and uh well i'll back up for a second one of the a competitive advantages of aircall is the way we sell and price the service and in a time like this it's shitty for us but we still believe it's the right thing to do and so we very often um or don't lock people into licenses, right? Of course, you can save money and pay us annually and you'll get a better deal, but we will let people go month to month. They're going to pay a higher rate, but they can do that. And so a lot of our legacy customers that have been with us for a long time um, have grown to be some of our biggest customers, right? There's a few travel companies now, I won't name their names, but they were even in the press recently for their layoffs that they just did. And so if they're on a month to month plan, we literally, our CS director, I feel so bad for the guy because he wakes up in the morning and looks at a dashboard and he can just see that his largest account went from a thousand agents on the phone to five overnight. And that MRR mm-hmm. goes down immediately. Mm. And so- yeah. We're in both of those scenarios. And of course, there's expansion opportunities that are happening that, that weren't happening. Uh, we're seeing education moving to remote and they need a phone system. Uh, so and maybe as, as, as somebody who's the tip of the spear to go get new accounts, are you migrating away from, I would hope so and assume so, yep. migrating away from industries that are being impacted the most headed towards, you know, exactly. new, new so, pastures, so to speak. So what are, yeah, what are so, some of the, what are some of the areas that you're, you know, farming right now um, and, and hunting in that um, you hadn't gone before. 
Yeah, uh, that's what has made this so exciting for us. So March was a big learning month where we see all sorts of counts coming inbound to us that we never would have signed up. We're like, this is so far out of our ICP. We would have never yeah. called on them. And we don't know even if they're going to stay with us after this. And some of them even tell us this might be temporary, but we're like, this is a chance for us to learn, right? Let's see if we can, can you go get, into can this. Can you give me an example of one yeah, or two yeah. of those? Yeah, so universities, um, hmm. uh, colleges, and yeah. uh, government agencies. So we just signed a big deal with the New York uh, New York Department of Homeless Shelter. I forget, it, DHS, Department of Homeless Shelter, I think it's called. Um, government agencies. These are places that you normally have to be an approved vendor. You have to go through a crazy process oh, yeah. to even get yeah. the chance to work with them. But all of those rules are, are waived right now during this crisis. Mm -hmm. And so they're coming to us. They're signing up really quickly. And so the two big focuses. So we went in, we got to the end of March and we're looking at, we built all crazy dashboards to, to analyze what's going on. We had this whole project where we weren't even tracking what industries companies were in. And so we all did this late night pizza project where we updated all of our accounts, industries and created dashboards. Anyway, so we saw education uh, increasing. We see health and wellness increasing and we see government uh, as well as nonprofits increasing. And so we spent uh, a good week preparing to do what I'm calling our COVID ICP project. And that's what we just rolled out at the start of this yeah. month, <clears throat> which is taking what we're seeing on the inbound side that's unusual and putting in place an outbound strategy for it. Um, and we're taking 50% of their time uh, and allocating it towards that. So 25% to education, 25% to government, the other 50% keep playing the long game on what we know works. Uh, so we wrote out new cadences, did a little, got a little contest going on with our two SDR managers and myself. I took the education and wrote the cadence. They wrote the cadences for the other two. Uh, and so we're, we're having a little fun do you uh, win? with that now. What's that? What do you win? Oh, just bragging rights of who writes the best cadence. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's nothing more powerful than bragging rights. As uh, you know. For a sales leader, it's the, that's all it takes. If I can get the highest response rate from my director of sales development, he'll never hear the end of it. Of course, never. if you don't get it, you're never going to hear the end of it too, right? Like That's, that's true. The, it's true. I'll, I'll no, find no, a way no, to, no, no. I'll blame it on the industry. It, yeah. If he doesn't get it, he'll find a million excuses and reasons why. I mean, his job is... Well, it's know, because I just, I did such a good job hiring the guy who's yeah, better than me. Exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here's the answer. A million reasons why. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look, I never thought I was going to win. I was doing this to motivate you. That's all. Yeah. What, I want to um, talk to you. I want to talk to Colin a little bit about um, equity and, and the lack of clarity and understanding that exists. Um, I've got notes on notes on notes. Yeah. This is our, this is our, you know, I didn't want to miss subject. anything. Yeah. This is our, this is our main, main subject here. You know, I, I could be wrong, but um, I feel like I was one of the first people to kind of speak out on this. And then you've, you've spoken out about it, you know, a number of times as well. Um, and other than you and I, I'm not really sure how many other operating VPs of sales have like chimed in and commented on it too much and stuck their, their necks out a little bit. Um, so I feel like we're kindred spirits in this particular, their, particular area. So um, where do we start, man? What are, what are, what are a couple things that, uh, you know, we need to do a little bit differently or a couple things that sales leaders can do differently to, uh, to help educate, you know, their yep. team so people are, are informed. So there's, and that's why I took some notes. I took some time to think about it. Cause I'm like, where do we start? Right. There is, there's a lot to dive into. And so 
I think a good place to start, right? Because there's probably people listening who, who don't understand. If we jump right into the details, they're going to be really lost. So I think like, because, and I'm not a pro on this by any means, right? I've read a lot. Sam Altman has some great stuff out there. I've learned a lot through Revenue Collective and just reading and reading and reading um, and just, you know, talking to folks like yourself. But I think what the big thing that people need to first understand is when you just think about an employee stock option program uh, and how it got to where it is today, my understanding is that when these programs were first designed, this was before the startup era, right? This is when you were getting stock options in a company that the options were already liquidable. They were already, they already had value. It was already real money. It was already money. money. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It was already money. And so if you got fired and you had some vested options, you didn't have to wonder, hmm, do I have the thousands of dollars I need to exercise those? Because you weren't going to sit on them and take a risk. It was money. You were cashing them out right away. And so those same programs got carried into the startup world where that's just not the case, right? And I think, I think partially that happened because people just recycled something that was already written, but it definitely has continued because founders and VCs very often, not all of them, not my founders and VCs, but founders and VCs, uh, they know that there's upside to that, right? They know that they can use this as a recruiting lever um, and they can make something sound really good. And people who are applying for these jobs are naive and they're uneducated and they don't know any better. Uh, and, and you don't find out the truth of all of this until the day comes that you think you're getting some money. What's the truth? What are you talking about though? Like, yeah, so that's where the details come into play, right? So first of all, um, there's a big difference between preferred and common stock, right? And I think that's the first point that a lot of people don't even know. And founders and VCs often have preferred stock, uh, or, or sometimes founders don't even have preferred stock. Sometimes they yeah, have common stock. Let's it's usually honest, the VCs, like right? Let's, let's be honest too, like anybody who's an SER, an AE, or a sales manager, or, you know, even a, a sales director or a VP, of common stack. You, you don't have preferred stack. There's no, no AE never, that never. I know of that has preferred stack. What, but explain no, 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 what, never. what the yeah. difference is. They don't yeah, know. So the, the difference, it, it's not black and white, but, but the often difference is that there's multiples on, on payouts and, and there's, uh, there's preferential treatment that happens in a liquidity event where someone with preferred stock, someone so, with preferred stock may be getting their money back before you get yours and they may get a multiple of it, which in certain scenarios could mean that you're getting nothing. Yeah. It means, it means there's nothing left for you potentially. Right. Even, Simpl even in the case of a big it. exit. Let's simplify it, Richard. Like what it means is all those people are getting paid and in fact, maybe paid two, three times more before you ever have a chance to get paid. At yes. its most simple, yeah. simple uh, way, yeah. And and there's different things about protection, right? Um, if you think of the Skype story, I think that was a good one that a lot of people have read about. Um, they just fired a whole ton of their employees before the acquisition closed, so they didn't have to pay anyone. And there was there was no protection on their rights to those ISOs, uh, and and they lost that. And these are people who worked their asses off to to get the company to the place of an acquisition, and they got nothing. And, and they lost their job. Yeah. Yeah. So things like that happen all the time. So I wonder if you, and I, I spent actual time during the workday with my team doing training on, on equity and stock options and whatnot. Um, is that something that you guys at Aircall do, or is that something that you've taken it upon yourself to do to try to make sure your, 
your uh, your team members know kind of their situation and what they're getting into? Informally, yes. Um, most of the folks here who have significant equity as part of their comp package were here before I was here. Um, and honestly, we're unusually transparent about this stuff at Aircall to begin with. Um, I didn't really have to push in any sense of the way when I was negotiating my plan to get the transparency that I think a lot of people don't get. It was presented to me uh, at face value and I went through it and I came back with questions and they had very clear answers. There was no beating around the bush. It wasn't like, oh, you're going to get X thousand shares. And I had to ask, well, what are they worth? How many outstanding shares are there? No, that was all presented to me up front, right? Which is unusual. Uh, and these, and these, are, these are questions, by the way, that people should be asking. Yeah, absolutely. Right? If as, someone as tells you entering, you're getting... Sorry, go ahead. No, I'll just say, if you're, if you're in the process of, of uh, you know, being recruited for a role, what Colin's talking about, these are the questions that you should be asking. You know, they might have yeah. been presented to Colin in a very transparent way, but if they weren't, I would hope that Colin would have been, you know, smart enough to be like, well, of course, how many total shares are there? What's the strike price right now? Et cetera, et cetera. Right. All yeah. Yeah. If, what if are, someone, what are some of those questions very specifically? Yeah. Like, so what are first, some of the questions that people should ask? The first red flag is if someone makes an offer to you and they just tell you you're getting 5,000 shares, you're getting 10,000 shares. And that's all they tell you. You immediately know they're not being forthcoming with the information. And you, you should ask these questions anyway, but I, I think that that's red flag. They should have just told you that up front because what you're telling me is it means nothing. It's like t telling you, I'm going to pay you a hundred of some currency, but I'm not going to tell you what the currency yeah. is. Is that a good right. deal? It's not a, you don't know what the hell yeah. it is, right? They could be Turkish lirum and they're worth nothing. And so yeah. outstanding shares is how many, how many shares are there in the company, right? And what's the valuation? What's the last strike price? And from there, you can figure out, they should tell you anyway, but you can figure out what percentage of the business uh, is actually being uh, uh, issued to you, right? Yeah. And you can get a and, sense and, of what it's worth. And, th and those things matter because there are, there are some sort of norms depending on stage of organization, the role of the organization, right? Um, and things like that, that, you know, people should be aware of. I had a conversation. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, so my, so for people listening, right? Like this is really good and, and it's very important if, as you're hitting that director and maybe the VP, VP of sales role. Should SDRs, you know, it should what should SDRs know about options, right? You're you're just coming out of college, right? You're calling. You yeah. Got this, here, here, here's you got here's what they should know. Here's, here's what they should here's what they should know. SDR, you are not getting fucking rich off however many options somebody is offering you as you move into your startup. It ain't yes. happening. No SDR take... is going to be a millionaire. All right. Definitely no SDR not. is probably even going to become half a millionaire. And it would be a miracle situation if an SDR had enough options where they could make six figures before taxes, let alone after taxes. That's no, what, here's what you'll get. Here's what you'll get. In the event of a good exit, you might get to rent a Jeep and take a weekend trip to Atlantic City. There you go. That's wow. set your so, expectations that's, there. That's reality. It's close I, mean, distance. I, I, yeah. I, I, I had an AE, a company that I was at not, not long ago. She she literally was 
recruited and told under the premise that her equity was going to make her, you know, millionaire. And so she As asked an AE? To, Oh yeah. 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 Early, early stage, like very early, yeah. one of the first ones, if not the first one. Right. And I'm like, all right, well, you know, you want, I'll, I'm happy to look over your paperwork with you and like do some math and try to give some guidance, whatnot. And I saw the paperwork and I was like mortified for her. Like my, my heart like dropped. I'm like, Oh my God, like you, you know, if you make five figures, you're going to be lucky, even if we have like a massive kind of exit. And un unfortunately, that 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 gap in in education or transparency or that misleading kind of thing that can be done in some organizations that still yeah. exists big time. So, you know, so let me ask you this. So, look, as an SDR or an AE, right? Um, they're, they're presenting equity to me, not, not regardless of whether they're presenting equity to me is you're going to become a billionaire, which, you know, too good to be true. Don't believe it. Should an SDRA, like what kind of questions should they be asking? They shouldn't necessarily be asking about the cap table. Um, can they be asking for, you know, I look at this, but I don't, you know, that's too big of a risk. I want more on the front end. Like, can, is that negotiable? Like what advice do you give to those people? Or is it like, Hey man, you know, know what you're going into. It'll be a nice bump if it happens, but you know, you're really here to educate yourself on sales and sales education and process so that you can work your way towards that bigger payout. So don't overthink this. Like what should they be thinking? Yeah. How should they be looking at that? Like what's your advice? To yeah. So, and I will just commit on the record that if, and when I'm not a VP of sales, I will give the same answer. Um, I think if you're an SDR and you're applying for a job and you're vetting out the, the company, you have limited time, right? I would not waste my time talking about stock options. It's not a significant part of why you're getting into the role. Uh, I would be trying to find out what opportunities I have for growth, what, who I'm going to learn from. I'd want to know what, what trajectory the business has because sure, your stock options may be worthless, right? As an SDR, if you take to a successful exit, but I'll tell you what's not worthless is riding the coattail of that success story and being someone who helped get the company there. And that was the case for me at single platform that got acquired for a hundred million dollars. I got nothing from it, but it, I leveraged that to become a VP of sales because of my right. experience living through that rapid scale. And it's why I am where I am today. So I, yeah. I have no hard feelings that, that I didn't, earn on that acquisition, right? Uh, and, and I think that's when you're coming in at an entry level role, um, that if that company is going to have an exit, let's face it, it's going to have it with or without you, right? And so your expectation um, that you deserve some sort of big piece of, of that reward is, is far-fetched, right? What you should be coming into right. that role for is to learn and to grow and to get yourself to the next point. You'd be shocked. You'd be shocked how many heads of sales and VPs of sales don't have the right context or the right understanding or information about equity. This is not just a yeah. SDR or AE kind of problem. There, there's, there's a VP of sales that Richard and I are, are aware of who only in the last couple months realized that they had almost nothing in terms of equity and ownership in the company. And this is somebody who had built the company almost from the ground up to a nine figure plus organization. And you should have seen this guy's like morale just, it just like melted off of him when, when we were having a conversation and he was just like, Oh my God, what? Like I, I should have had some equity. And then there's, there's 
multiple other people that we know that are running the same circles as the three of us that I've had conversations with. And they were asking me questions about equity and negotiations and whatnot. And they told me like how many shares that they had. And I asked all the other right questions and I sort of spelled out for them like where they were at and what percentage of the total pool that was and what all that might be worth. And then I told them what I had in, in, in you know, Main Street Hub that we sold for 175 million. I had, you know, a significant chunk of, sh of shares, seven figure number of shares. Uh, and, and they were like, what? I have like, you know, 10,000. And, and so, you know, it's really important to, to listen to what Colin's talking about here. You know, you, you go into these startups, you don't optimize for equity, optimize for the learning, optimize for the role, optimize for the ride, if you will optimize for the people you can attach yourself at the hip to who might bring build you your brand day. build your brand off right right and exactly look at and our top our, let, our new ae who i know you know yeah. phil right phil's a great yeah. example of that who came in yeah. right uh it's just grinded his ass off and now he's running his own podcast he's a top ae like you know and, and it's, he did that because he picked the right company to come to right and and that's yeah. gonna that's gonna he be also worth picked tenfold. A, he also he also picked the right conference to go to um, to get advice from a couple of people that, that may or may not have helped propel him forward. And you know, I still that, didn't get to see the it. picture of him on the surfboard, which I, I remember was a requirement. <laughs> yeah, these, these pictures do exist. I'm going to have to find it. <laughs> I was actually on his podcast yesterday, so um, I was oh yeah, the podcast. Yeah, so that's awesome. We, yeah, we talked um, we talked about you and how handsome you are and, and what a good man you <laughs> are. You know, all that you know. Colin, Max Altshuler, who I know you know, was, was on the show not too long ago. Yeah. And, and he talked about how the four-year vest uh, is just archaic and needs to die and go away, right? And it, what does he think it needs to be, shorter or longer? He thinks it needs to be role and sort of time-specific, stage-specific vesting. So here's, here's an example, and I'm 100% on board with him with this, um, in particular because this is what I've done almost my whole career. So I go into an organization and they have no revenue, no process, no nothing, right? <clears throat> My job is essentially to get them from zero to, let's call it 10 to 20 million ARR. Get them through and up to like a series C, okay? Yeah. Now, if I, if I can do that in two to three years, which I've done, how does it make sense that I haven't, that I don't fully vest all the options that have been you know, allocated to me. Like I did exactly what I was supposed to do for that stage of the company, right? And what we need to do. So why not just have, you know, if you're at the very beginning, like this is a two-year job. You do your job, you're fully vested there. If you're somebody who's supposed to take the company from, you know, a hundred million ARR to a billion ARR, maybe that's a different timetable and a, and a and a different vest and a different allocation of shares. So I'm curious what what you think and. and he, I think he even brought up how the one-year cliff is, is bullshit and an archaic, um, you know, kind of kind of standard. I'm curious, you know, what you think about the the cliff and the vesting and the sort of stage-appropriate, um, you know, model that uh, Max talked about. And anybody who hasn't listened or heard about this yet should go back and listen to our episode uh, where we talked to Max about this. That's interesting. So. <clears throat> I've read a lot of Sam Altman's thoughts on this because he proposes 
really good for those who don't know Sam Altman's from Y Combinator. He proposes really good solutions to uh, most of these problems. And you just brought up the one point that he makes that I don't agree with, which is he thinks the four-year vest is actually too short and that companies are becoming, their valuations are increasing so fast now. Um, and what he proposes is that in year one, you vest 10%. In year two, you vest 20%. Year three, thir- and so that the idea is you're vesting a smaller piece earlier on. This is the worst piece of advice I've ever heard. I hate it. I hate, yeah. I, I, but every other, every other solution he has is great. I don't know what he was thinking. He was drinking too many White Claws yeah, when he, he got to that well, bullet. He's, but. He's, probably, he's probably thinking he's already made millions and millions and millions of dollars. And uh, right. you know, I wonder Trying how I can keep more of it if I build something else. <laughs> But uh, no, I like what you're what you said that you uh, spoke about with Max, because uh, it is situational, right? And and it it's yeah. it's it's not one size fits all. Um, the chances of a VP of sales staying at a company for four years, uh, we already know are are it's almost zero, right? It's it's yeah. almost zero, it's and that doesn't mean zero. Yeah. it doesn't mean that you did a bad job. Yeah, it doesn't mean you failed. It it, it in fact it might mean you did exactly what you're supposed to do There's you may have done it where, where you, too well <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. You, you grow so fast and and beat all these expectations but yeah. let's just say you know you've never been ahead of sales for like a nine-figure arr company you've never been the cro at a company that's about to go public and so they go higher above you and kind of top you off and potentially make your role redundant and all of a sudden you're penalized and you, you're unable to have the opportunity to vest yeah. 25%, 10, the final 10% of your options, it doesn't make any sense to me. And similar to your, your Skype story, you know, you go, you go work someplace for nine, 10, 11 months. And all of a sudden, all these people get whacked and they, and they get nothing for all, yeah. all the value that they, they added because they didn't hit their one year clip. I know Richard's going to be too big to say it, but I know Richard has personal experience with this type of type of thing before. So I, I just, I just wonder, you know, how much longer everyone on the employee side is going to be willing to tolerate some of these, some of these terms that might not make sense anymore. So I'll give you a, I think there's a good tactical piece of advice. So there's two ways to think about this. One is there's a longer movement that needs to happen, right? In terms of people getting educated, knowing how to push back, knowing what to ask for, knowing how to negotiate. Uh, but that's not going to change overnight. Because a lot of times the CEO or whoever you're negotiating with, they may not even control the board anymore and, and they can't even make those decisions. And, you know, you could, you could end up losing the chance to get the job just because they have to wait for the next board meeting to even try to get approval on what you're trying to negotiate. Maybe they want to give it to you and they can't even do it. And that's the reality of what a lot of the scenarios are. Um, and sometimes it's not the CEO. Sometimes it's past that. Um, and so I think there's that, right, which is, and I think Revenue Collective's doing a great job, Sam Jacobs, helping to educate people and, and create that movement that's long term. But for people today that are getting into these negotiations, you need to be tactical and you need to think to yourself when you're negotiating for that amount of stock options, that's going to have those terms that you probably don't like for your vest, whatever, you need to be happy with the fact that you're probably only going to end up getting half of that. And is that worth the next two years of working your ass off. And that's how you need to think of it. And if you do it that way, and maybe you're saying, I, you need to give me double, right? If it's vesting over for you, whatever it is, or, that's or, or, you maybe, or maybe you just, or maybe you decide, you know what, that's worth it. 
that's definitely worth sure. it for, yeah. for this stage of my life and, and, and yeah. where I'm And that's at. how I went into, into air call. Uh, I, I set in my head, will I be happy if I leave here in two years and half of this vests? Is that worth it for me? Because um, that could very well be the case for anyone, right? Um, and, and if it's uh, the one-year cliff you asked me about, I don't have a problem with the one-year cliff. I'm curious to hear if you do. I, I actually think that feels fair if you don't make it through the first year that you get nothing. I don't know I, that I fully you know, agree. I, that it's, I don't know no, that I agree I, it's fair. What about you, Richard? I'll let you talk. I'm yeah, so I've, I've been through that where I, I, you know, I mentioned it in the interview. I said this is what can happen, and I want protections against it. And um, yeah, I was, you know, told, you know, no, no, no. And I, and look, the guy, I let myself believe in the technology uh, too much. Um, and at the time it was right, but I got, I got screwed at the month seven. Right. And so then when, you know, when things happened at month seven, I negotiated hard on severance. I was like, no, mm -hmm. I, I'm not going to take $5,000. Like, sorry. I'd much rather, and I literally said it. I, I remember saying this to the to the COO at the time. I said, "Look, if you're paying me to shut up, it's going to cost you more than five thousand dollars." And they're like, "You mean you'd go say something if if we don't pay you more?" I'm like, "That's what you're asking me to sign. <laughs> like, don't be stupid about it, right?" Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, my that five thousand dollars was not going to change my life, and um, it wasn't going to corrupt me. But I was not above going to Glassdoor and ripping them apart, um, you know, because, you know, if they think that my value is that insignificant, well, then yeah. let me go post that. And, like, it, it's, and, and right, you have to at least right. be willing, and me, and, and Scott knows this about me, is I hate, I love having those arguments, and I probably hurt myself sometimes because I enjoy those arguments. I love being right too much, right, as opposed <laughs> to... Um, as opposed to sort of seeing the gray, uh, which is one of the reasons Scott's such a good friend. And, and uh, to me is because he always, I'm like, Scott, am I just, am I being too Richard on this? Am I being too much of a, he's like, well, you know, you might want to look at it this way. And, you know, and it's probably what helped me. I know it's what's helped me back in other parts of my career before I started doing what I do now. Um, I just don't like politics. Like I, I will call and, it and out. This, and this can be, this can be done the right way as well. Like, I don't know if you guys saw, but. Uh, I was just I never very good at it. Yeah, but the CEO of Carta just had to do this. I'm blanking on the CEO of Carta's name, but they just laid off 16% of their workforce. Um, and he basically like auto vested everybody else's, um, you know, yeah. shares, what, what have you, right? You can continue to let them vest, even though they're not with the company anymore. Paid yeah. out, like he's paying all their Cobras for keeping their insurance going through the end of the year. Gave every single person... Yep. three months severance and that kind of thing. But the equity piece was really interesting to me to let them continue to earn out because that company has done quite well prior to, to all of this. And so there's real value there. And so when, they when also, I see a, company, when I, he when also I see a like, company get it right, but when I see a company get that right, that infuriates me even more knowing how many people are getting it wrong. You yeah, know, I, I, they I had to get that. it right. Given their business, they had to get yeah, that right. They had to get it right, yeah. I, I was a part did. of that. I got, I got to at a company right before the acquisition, was unaware of the acquisition. Um, I was taken care of with a nice severance. I, I was definitely hugged out the door. But then when the acquisition happened a few months later, I, I saw that everybody got immediately vested who was who stayed on, right? 
And I was like, wait a minute. And I went back and I read my, my severance letter. Cause at that point I was willing to sign cause it said, you know, you're going to get X number of months. And that, that was worth it to me. And it even said in there, it said, you know, based on your knowledge, you will not come back and sue. Like it was based on that knowledge. So there was actually a clause in the letter that said, that implied, if I had gone back and said, wait a minute, you guys didn't tell me you were going to vest everybody. You now owe me that. Uh, I probably, I probably could have gone back and do, done it, but, and it was a significant number. Like it was, it was no small number. Um, but I just didn't have the energy to put towards it. Like I just, didn't, that's the problem. Yeah. And you right? need a lawyer. And, and they know that, yeah. Right. And I didn't want to burn the, and I, I think I, and I, I know I have done a great job not to burn the bridge with those people. Like I could get those people on the phone if I wanted help or needed help or, and you know, Scott knows a couple of them, but, um, but I didn't go back and do it. So they did, tr they did hug me out the door the right way. But again, nobody ever taught me to look at the fine print. Nobody ever taught yeah, me to look yeah. for that stuff. Right. And so that's why I'm always like, if you're going to get let go and there's equity involved, don't sign anything. Yeah. They don't teach you this stuff in college. Um, there's well, one other piece that we, when you go workplaces, either. yeah. Oh, either. well it's not, it's not in their advantage to, to do it. But, right. Um, this is, this that's is why I think it's important for people like, like us to talk about it. To though. speak up. Yeah. Yeah. This, and this, look, this, I give credit to, uh, if, if anyone wants to learn more about this, like a, you can read a lot. Um, but Sam Jacobs put together what he calls the bill of rights, which is on revenue collectives website, which I think does a pretty damn good job of outlining what people should be asking for. Uh, the hard part is knowing how to ask for it though. Um, the one piece, uh, Scott, that we didn't talk about is the exercise periods, which is, yeah. is, right? When you leave the company. Yeah, you got um, 90 days typically. To, you have 90 days, which the, the reason this is a huge problem, and this again comes back from the archaic model of you leave, and of course you're going to exercise within 90 days because it's already worth money and it doesn't cost you a dollar to do it. But if you leave your startup now, you put in two years, three years of hard work, you were a, a contribution to getting the company's valuation increased and getting yeah. them that much closer, right? You now have 90 days to exercise your options, which basically means, let's assume you're in a VP role or whatnot, this is a significant piece of your comp. You have to now invest your cash into the business before there's any guarantee that that money is gonna, is gonna pay you back uh, a return. And you could be yeah. losing a lot of and, money forever. And talk, 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 about, talk about what that fee might be. I've, I've had to do this three times now so you tell me you then you know more about it than i do <laughs> well if, if if you're a if you're a vp of sales and, and you've you know built up a uh, a significant powerful business like you better have a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars lying around oh oh you mean how much you're going to you use can, to oh I'm yes yes to, exer to exercise i'm talking about you're probably exercise. looking at at least a year of your salary yeah, you're you're gonna have Roughly. to come up with between a hundred thousand and two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, and write a check, and write a check that disappears into the void and into the abyss for a to be determined amount of time, in the hope that it comes back, you know, significantly. You, you literally become an investor in the business that you're now leaving, with no guarantees, and then the government taxes you on that spend and counts it as new income even though you haven't actually realized the income and in fact you've actually lost money on the whole deal yes yes and, and the reason and people that people are completely do that, unprepared for that how many you know 
I know a lot, I know a lot of people. I, I'm fortunate enough that I've, I've been able to do these exercises, but you know, you talk about people trying to live paycheck to paycheck and, and month to month and things like that. Like how many people have that kind of money lying around? You know, yeah. how many reps, how many reps have $5,000 to $15,000 lying around that they if don't. they left their company, they'd be able to exercise those options. They don't. And, and by happens, the way, what happens the to company the options knows if that. they don't exercise? Of course the that, company knows that. Yeah. The company knows that. And so when they're issuing their, when they're deciding how big the employee pool is going to be, they know, statistically, they know what percentage of what they issue is coming right back to them. Yeah. And then they, they reissue it. it to somebody else. And they don't yeah. tell you that in your offer letter. Yeah. No. Well, we could go on and on about this, this, uh, this topic forever, but uh, you probably need to get uh, back I to work. We should, I think we should do a, um, let's do a live podcast on this with Colin. Right. That's like a webinar one night. Sure. Yeah. Like, and why don't we summarize real quick, like the important things? I think, uh, A, the amount of equity you're negotiating in an executive level job, you should be happy with if you only get, let's say, call it half of that. Right. Because you're probably not going to be there the full four years. Um, B, you should make sure you're getting monthly vesting to the extent that uh, that you can. C, you should really push for a 10 year vesting after you, or sorry, exercise period rather than 90 days. It's usually 90 or 10 years. Uh, and if you get the 10 years, that's, that's the company's way of telling you, like, we actually want you to have the equity that you've earned. And we're right. not going to back yeah. you into a corner where you have to invest all of your life savings or whatnot uh, to, to take a chance on a, the worst lottery ticket you'll ever buy. Right. Um, I, I think those are probably the three, uh, oh, and, and, and understand the, the preferential, uh, the preferred Perfect. stock and the, and the, the terms of, of that and yep. understand. Yeah. And, and you, your company should be able to put together scenarios for you with the offer of saying here, if we have an exit in two years, here's what happens. Right. And, and you should also understand, I forget what the terminology is of this, but if you guys are getting acquired uh, and the acquiring company decides that they're eliminating your job, what then happens to your stocks? You should have accelerated vesting yeah, on trigger. those. It's the trigger. It's single right, trigger, right. double, tr double trigger. Yeah, yeah. But there's so much to unpack. There's so that we're much. Have to bring, we're going to have there's to bring so Colin back or, or maybe as Richard says, we'll, we'll do a, a, a live event here. In the I think we do a live when we get questions week, from so. people. So I think that'd be cool. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good idea. Sounds good. Appreciate, appreciate your time. Maybe, Colin. maybe we get, uh, we get, we get like uh, a lawyer who knows all the good stuff on the call. Or, or we can just get Sam to come on and talk about yeah. his bill of rights. Oh, there you go. Well, Actually, he, yeah, he does know it really well. Yeah, we'll get Max on there too. So, oh, right. Sam so, would Colin, talk about this any day. Yeah. So, Colin, we would we you know we always sort of turn this around um, for for folks is how can we help you? What can we do to help Colin in terms of life, business, health, wealth, all these things going on right now? Because you've been very generous with yourself and your knowledge and your time. You know what? I think you guys have both already helped me uh, a lot, right? I, I mean, Richard has referred people to me. You guys have gotten on calls with our team and, and mentored them and helped them. I think if anyone else would have asked me that question, I'd probably have an answer. But I, 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 you guys have honestly, and I'm not just saying it, both of you. I mean, Scott has come out to speak uh, at our events. And um, yeah, I think you guys are tremendously um, generous with your time. Um, I think you enjoy it and that's why you do it. And we're, we're all grateful. And I know that, uh, most of the team, although the folks who have interacted with you guys would say that as well. So honestly, uh, I can't ask for a thing guys. 
That is well, if you, if you do if you do think of something, make sure that you you know reach out to us and and let us know. So, well, um, join we'll, join we'll one probably... of our join one of our upcoming events, or we'll do more events. I guess just keep talking, man. That's all. That's all. Well, it sounds like we might have a new one that we're all going to do. So let's do it. Let's do it. Awesome, man. Sponsored Thanks, sponsored really by sponsored by Aircall. <laughs> yeah, and I get a, a cut of that, right? Yeah, yeah. We'll yeah, sponsorships yeah. Can... to the podcast. <laughs> So, you know. <laughs> All right, Colin. Good stuff, you, guys. Stay, Stay healthy man. out there. You too, bud. Bye-bye.